I do want to say good day to you. I'm Joel, one of the pastors here, and we're uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you would open up the Word of God there with me, that'd be great. Uh, I, I've been asked lately, though, uh, we have a lot of people who have stepped into the ministry over the last few months who don't understand all the contextualization of what I've been walking through with 1 Corinthians. So I'm going to give you another quick rundown. Um, it'll help all of us regardless. Uh, I'm going to start with the map. People know, my guys know, especially I love maps. Um, there's Corinth right in the middle. And if you look at it, it is right there in between the Aegean, the Adriatic Seas. Um, and Paul has visited there. He spent 18 months establishing the church there in Corinth. Qu modern day Corinth, it's there, but it's not really there. It's not a town or anything anymore. Um, and it's there in this key area. So it's a crucial pass through between the seas in which people would always stop. It was known primarily for two things. It was a significant hub for trade, but also it was primarily known for sexual immorality. So much so, remember, that if somebody was really bought into um, sexual immorality, the people would refer to them all over the place as, oh, you're, you're a Corinthian. Um, that's what they would refer to them as. Um, and so there Paul is writing now back to them. He's heard from Chloe in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says he heard from Chloe's household of a lot of dissension and some things that were taking place. We know that we can identify at least 26 different types of temples that were offered to different gods that they came up with. They would just come up with a god for anything that they wanted to do. Like, oh, well, we should come up with a god so we can get what we want. And that's what they ended up doing. We know that Aphrodite was um, the, the goddess of uh, sex and they worshiped um, that goddess and came with a thousand prostitutes every night would come down from the hillside so that they could do whatever they want anytime that they wanted. Um, that gives you a basis for understanding about who Paul is writing to. And when he heard about all the divisions, he heard about quarrels, he heard about the immorality, he heard about different questions with regarding marriage and virgins and food that was sacrificed to idols and spiritual gifts. All of these different things were being brought to his attention. And so now he's writing to them to provide him with instruction. Remember, these aren't a lot of people who all, oh, they have churches of background and they understand all of these different stories. Even if they don't know the story, when they hear the story, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, I know that story, right? That's not what the case was. These are individuals who didn't know all of that. And so Paul is writing and he is writing to encourage, to prompt, to instruct, to challenge, to exhort, but also to teach and to equip and to edify. And he's trying to help them out. As a result, he also talks about their heart and attitude. All of those things that I called out that he heard about, whether it be sexual immorality or whether it be all the differences with marriages and the quarreling and the fighting and the bickering and all, all the different things that is taking place. And do you, do, you have, do you eat this food that was given to idols? Do you not eat this food that was given to idols? He addressed that a couple of chapters ago. All of this, he knows that it really it boils down to your heart and your attitude. So he talked about that because also what we find out in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he, he somewhat is speaking, if you, especially if you go to uh, the original language, Paul is speaking with some sarcasm. Now we know that I love Paul because I think he's been given that gift of sarcasm in some ways. And he just says, guys, don't you know that you've already been given everything you want? He says the very thing. He goes, already you have everything you want and yet you just want more. You ever had a kid that just always wants more no matter what, right? 
And no matter what, or, or you give a gift to somebody at Christmas and you're like, here, here you go. And you're like, oh, I thought it was going to be a different color. And you just want to just take them out back. <laughs> right? You always want more. And so now he's writing these people like, listen, you already have everything you could want. And you just want more and more and more and more. And so he's addressing this. He's letting them know this. This gives you an understanding of what's taking place. Friends, here's the problem with blessings. Anybody feel blessed by God? Raise your hand. I'm blessed. I have an amazing, amazing wife. I have some great kids. I have an, an amazing church that I get to serve in. And um, I tell you, I, I've got friends who would do anything for me. And it, it's remarkable. I have a, I'm so blessed. Here's what blessings do, though. Is blessings can shift the value that we place on our need of God. That's what blessings can do. In time, we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, So you can think about it as your career, right? God, help me to have this career and this job, and I want to be able to accomplish this and be able to earn this and, and be able to have this and this and this. And we start going, man, God, please help me to do this and make wise decisions and have clarity and wisdom and insight and discernment. And we're praying these things that are biblical things to pray. And then all of a sudden, in time, we end up getting those things. And then what happens is we go, man, God, thank you for doing this. But it doesn't take long for us when we're talking to other people to let them know not what God has blessed us with, but what we have accomplished. And so all of a sudden you don't think that you, you forget that you needed God to be able to, to do those things. You needed God to accomplish those things. And so now you're taking credit and you're, you're taking the pat on the back for that which God has blessed you with. And you're taking the glory and the honor for yourself. We do it continually. And the people here are doing it. And he's calling this out. And he's like, don't you know? You've already got everything you want. Already you've become rich. You've got everything you could desire. And so he's trying to, he's knocking on the door, right? And he's trying to get their attention back on God because they've lost it already. He goes, he starts the church. It's like people are coming to know the Lord and very quickly they're buying into the world, they're buying into preference, they're buying into what they desire. And so now he's, I, he's trying to get their focus back on God. I think it's the same thing Paul would do in this church and in every church in America if he started coming today. I think his letters would be very simple. I think his letters would be trying to get us to focus back on Christ and the gospel rather than our preferences. One of the things that I uh, found myself doing, because I was around some people who just constantly complained for a season of my life. And so in that moment, and it doesn't say scripturally that you have to do this, by the way, so I want to be careful on that. But I just started to, to keep my, my attitude right. I started weighing and making sure that I was giving God thanks more than I was requesting of. God, thanks for everything that you're doing. I appreciate it. Thanks for my family. And then I would just jump in and I'd spend the next five, 10 minutes just, God, could you please? Hey, God, could you? And I'm like, I stopped. It doesn't mean it's wrong to ask. I'm not, not, I'm not saying that. But it helped to adjust my attitude when I started to praise God for what he's already done more than asking for him to do more. So he's like, don't you know that you already have everything that you want? And he calls it out. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 12, yes, I will get to chapter 10 in a moment. He says, if others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. So they were giving up rights. We've been talking about that for the last month or so. They were giving up rights. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why would you not give up anything in your life rather than opposed to serve as a hindrance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so he's encouraging him, like, you're buying into all these other things and you're wanting to absorb them and adopt them and embrace them. Why would you not want to give those things up if it's going to hinder the power of the gospel? But they couldn't wrap their minds around that. Here's some other contextualization for you. Now, remember, is he writing to a bunch of Jewish people who grew up, a bunch of Israelites? No, he's not. Like he, he's writing to the people in Corinth. So he's writing to, to both, I would say, remind them, but also teach them because they don't know all of this. So he's not beating them up too bad here. But you need to remember something so that when I read the text, you're going to resonate with it differently. Israel was chosen by God as his nation, Right? This will be good for you to hear and even go back, probably listen to it again because it's gonna help you to communicate with other people. Israel was chosen by God as his nation. Their purpose was to serve as a, a witness to the living God, the one true living God. That was their purpose and to only do that very thing. But yet they ended up being useless and ended up being disqualified. Why? Because they failed spiritually. And he's going to take time, Paul's going to take time to tell them about, you know, even going all the way back to Exodus, where God provided everything for the people, including deliverance, including food, including water, and yet they still stepped away from giving glory and honor to God, right? We know that the people of God, he embraced them, he came and says, you are my people, you are my nation, and they ended up, though, in captivity. How long were they in Egypt? 400 years. Everybody say 400 years. There he is for four, there are 400 years and God says, I'm going to deliver you. He calls out Moses, says, Moses, you're going to help deliver the people. And so all of a sudden, after all the plagues and everything else, the people are like, okay, let's go. And so they go and God takes them through the, what sea? Red Sea. So he takes them through the Red Sea and all of a sudden they're experiencing this deliverance and it's awesome. And God even gives them, you read through Exodus chapter 13, it talks about the cloud that was over them. A very simple way to think about the cloud is that that is the rock, that is Christ was with them. Christ came in flesh 2000 years ago, but he's always been. That's the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The cloud would give them fire at night and protection from the brutal desert sun during the day. And God gave them all the food and all the water that they needed, right? And yet then they would still just come and do what? Grumble and complain. God, like the food is the same every day. Can you throw some Cajun seasoning here? Right? And they just complained and they grumbled and they murmured and they just, it was continual. And so he's going to tell them about all of this and tell them then, this is an example for you to learn from. Anybody try to learn from the people who have ever gone before them to learn from the mistakes of the people before? Anybody try to do that? Anybody ever think that you're an exception to the rule and you can just figure it out on your own and you wish you would have paid attention to the people who made mistakes before you? So he's going to do this and he's going to tell them the story and say, will you learn from them? Here's the example. First Corinthians chapter 10, going through verse 13, but we're going to start one through seven. Will you please stand for the reading of the word of God? He starts with this. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Right? That's why I told you the backstory. So now you're going to hear all this and go, oh, yeah, yeah, we know that, Pastor. 
right? So brothers that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses and to, in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Right, so he's like, I delivered, I did my thing. Mm, yep, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not what? Mm. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. These things took place as an example. Remember, he's writing to a bunch of people. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't get brought up in the church, okay? So now he's calling out and then saying, let this be an example to you, right? These things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be, don't do it, don't. He doesn't even say, hey, and by the way, it would be good if you try not to step into idolatry. He says, no, 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 do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So already we hear this story, especially in the first uh, five verses here, and we go, okay, um, he's teaching them, he's educating them, but then he's telling them, learn from their example. Because then in verse six, he says, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Another translation says, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So they are listening to the words of Paul, teaching and instructing. And then Paul says to them, hey, if you do the same thing they're doing, you're setting your heart on evil things and you're going to be led away. You're going to be distracted and you're going to fall into the same problem that they did because they were disqualified from being the nation of God in the same manner. Here's the problem. Here's the struggle that we have. The longer you are around something, the more accustomed you get. And the longer you're around something, the more accustomed you get to it, even if it's sin, the less resolve you have to remove it from your life. Right, there are some things, some things you, as soon as you see it, you're like, oh man. But if you're always around it, all of a sudden you're like, okay, you start to accept it. And then all of a sudden you, re, you, you, you lose a resolve to remove it from your life. There, there are certain things I remember seeing in my life. I go, oh, really? I remember when I saw the first minivan. I, just ugly, right? Can I have a hallelujah? Um, I'm not saying they're wrong. Don't write me a letter. Um, but I remember just the first one because I wasn't accustomed to seeing it. And now over the years, if, if the lighting is just right and it's really dark, um, I look at it and I go, that's not bad. <laughs> right? I owned one for over a decade. I get it because the kids kept coming. And so I'm like, okay, just throw them in the back. And, but I still go, Ugh. I remember, it's not just a minivan. I remember doing that with the first Jeep Wrangler that had four doors. I'm like, why would you ruin such a good thing. And then they came out with 
Like, really? And now I'm like, give me two, please. Right? I, because over time, you get accustomed to something. We do it all the time. We do it with the way we dress. We all know I do not understand bell bottoms. I'm like, why waste that much fabric? Um, but over time, you get accustomed to something, and then all of a sudden, you get accustomed to it so much so that you start even wearing it. And even if it's not of God, you then lose your resolve to remove it. We all have those things. Today, the most prominent thing that would fit into that category is this thing called, um, what's it called? Tech, tech, what is it? Technology? Is that what it is? You know what that is? We know, I told the men yesterday, number one place men and women fall to pornography is Instagram. More than anything else, most exercise muscle we have today is the thumb. We just scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll. So my question is, if we know, it's like taking a gun only with two barrels and you have a shotgun shell in one and one not in the other and you're gonna just go for it and pull the trigger and see if it's empty. Like it's that bad, guys. It's that bad. I say guys very generally speaking. And yet we won't remove ourselves from it. And the more we're around it, the more accustomed we get. And the more accustomed we get, the less resolve we have to remove it from our life. But I gotta have it, all my friends have it. So? So he calls us out. He says, keep your heart from evil things. Don't do it. And the very first thing he calls out, he's gonna call out four different key areas for them to learn from. The first one he calls out is idolatry. He just said, these things took place as an example. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. They gave themselves to sitting down and eating and drinking and rising up and playing and doing, doing whatever they wanted. And they had things in their life that were more important than God was to them. So he calls this out. Listen, idols are very simple. I'm gonna run through these pretty fast. Idols are pretty simple. And some of you are going, how do you know if something is an idol? Or you don't even know how to identify it. Let me tell you how you identify an idol. Two primary things to evaluate if you really want to evaluate if you have an idol. Where you give your energy and where you give your resources. Your energy is your time. Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your resources? Where do you give your time? Where do you spend your resources? That will let you know what type of idol you have in your life. I would ask you to go to a friend or a spouse and say, hey, I'm not saying that I have an idol, but if I were to have an idol, what would you say it is? And ask them so you can learn from it to make sure that you stay focused on Christ and not on something other than Christ, something that is absorbing and taking away your energy from him. Well, we do have these things called the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, where are they found? Exodus chapter what? Starts with the two, ends in a zero. What is it? 20. There you go. Good job. Exodus chapter 20, Ten Commandments. Do they matter? Yes. yes. They matter a lot. And this is here's first commandment. God spoke all these things, all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other before me. You shall have no other gods before me. That's what he says. Don't do it. 
Idolatry is very simple. It's just giving greater worth to anything than you have given to God. That's all that it is, but it matters a lot. Because why? Every single person has this, some type of scale or some type of size you have to work with. Your life can only encompass so many different things. And so whatever is driving that life matters. And if it's full of idols, you have no room for God. So I want to tell you very quickly, um, very quickly, how you, can, how, how you deal with idols. You ready for this one? Here's how you deal with idols. First of all, you have to identify them. If you're not willing to identify them, you're not going to deal with it. And you need to be able to go. That's why you go to a friend and say, hey, do you see any idols in my life? Well, you go, go do that today. Go, honey, do you see an idol in my life? Well, you spend a lot of time in the garage staring at that blasted car, working on it. Does it really need another muffler? Right? Not saying it's an idol. Could be. And you spent all your time over there rather than like you don't serve the way you used to serve. Why? Well, I'm just busy with such and such. So if you're that busy and you can't even serve the Lord, are you don't do you don't isn't that an idol? So you have to identify it. Second, what you have to do is you need to repent because idols are sinful. So you identify them, then you repent, then you need to ask for help. Mature leaders invite what? Accountability. So if you're going to invite accountability, you're like, hey, I need some help here because you can't do it alone. It's really hard to do it alone. Let's just at least say that. It's really hard to do it by yourself. And some of us are so arrogant and proud, we just think we can do it by ourselves. But yet we know we're not the exception to the rule. And you're going, well, why are you saying that? In a little bit, that's where I get that. It comes from scripture. So you need to identify them, then repent, then ask for help. And then you need to replace the idol with the godly. Because if you remove something, you're going to fill that back up with something. If all of a sudden you got an extra 12 hours on your week, guess what you have? An extra 12 hours in your week. And so you're going to fill that back up. It doesn't really help if you remove one idol just to substitute it with another idol. What you want to do is to remove it and to fill it with the presence of God and to learn of him and to live for him. And so then you have to make sure that you are replacing that with the godly. I mean, it can be, uh, some of us, it can be, I told the guys, some of it's just the team that you cheer for, right? Some of you cannot, like you are angry when your team loses a game. Great, but that's stupid. Has no eternal impact. So he calls out idolatry. And then he goes into the next section, 8 through 13. You can stay seated for this. Here it comes. And this is what it says. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. So he just addressed idolatry, say idolatry. Now he addresses addresses sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Friends, learn it now. Sin has consequence. That's not fair. Sin has consequence. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. So now they're testing God. Everybody say testing God. 
That's the third thing he's going to address. And then they were destroyed by the serpents. Nor should we grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let not... let. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. If any of you think that you're exception to the rule, you're in a bunch of trouble. That's what this is telling us. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Please say that. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with a temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it, that you may be able to bear it, that you may be able to stand against it is what it would mean in the original language. So that you can withstand that temptation of sexual immorality, that temptation of having idols in your life, that temptation of always grumbling and complaining, that temptation of seeing how far you can push God. So he's already talked about idolatry. So now he jumps into sexual immorality. I've been talking about that a lot the last few months. And uh, so I'm going to go ahead and just give you a very brief summary of it. Sexual immorality and lust destroys relationships, period. We know that it does. Nobody has ever had a spouse come home to look at them and say, hey, I cheated on you or somebody else. And they go, man, that just makes me feel so fulfilled. It destroys relationships. It destroys all types of things. We know this. And some of the Pharisees then, they were teaching with their laws that lust was the cause of adultery. Other Pharisees were teaching that as long as you didn't commit, commit an act, you weren't actually guilty of anything. And so people were coming to step in and resolve that whole debate. In fact, in the Old Testament, we know that adultery was a capital offense deserving of death. We see that in both Exodus chapter 21 and also Leviticus chapter 20. He's going, don't you understand what it really does to your relationships and everything else? No wonder you guys have so many questions about marriage and trying to be in healthy relationships because you're just giving yourself to whatever you want to give yourself to. And then he tells them, he's letting them, how can you go to the table of the Lord and then go back to a corrupt place of sexuality? Remember every night over a thousand prostitutes would come down, they do whatever they want and they're having all these struggles. Why? Because their hearts aren't aligned with God. How can you go to the house of the Lord and then jump on a, to a computer stream right afterwards and look at pornography? Your heart's actually not given to Christ. Friends, uh, we talked about it again and again, just simply because you profess something in Christ doesn't mean you actually believe in his power and have surrendered to his authority. We've been taught to profess something, but I don't know if we've had it modeled well enough to what it is to really surrender to him. Why? Because we keep the idols in our life. No wonder the generations have turned away from God because they're going, hey, we should do all of these things and you got to learn all of these Bible stories. And then they go home, they go, yeah, but mom and dad, we have all these idols. I don't get it. But mom and dad, I see how we speak to each other and you're yelling and there's so much anger. And yet now you're bringing me to church and you're telling me to have the peace of Christ. I don't get it. Because we're teaching generations to profess something that we don't automatically believe. Well, you're telling me to be a part of the bride of Christ because God tells us, he's instructing us that he's going to use us and build it upon the rock of Christ. And yet all of a sudden what you're doing is you're telling me we're just gonna show up once or twice a month and not really engage in it. And yet you're telling me that the church matters. It doesn't make sense to me. What you're telling me by the life that we live is I make sense to me. And that's what I'm gonna give myself to. For some of us, the biggest idol we have is self.
And if somebody were to tell you that, you'd probably get angry at them and through self, you would tell them why they're wrong and how everybody else is screwed up. We must be convinced, friends, that sin is destructive. Sin is far more than an inconvenience. Real issue with sexual immorality is that we're more concerned about our temporary satisfaction than we are a commitment to God and to others. We're more concerned with our temporary satisfaction than we are our commitment to God and others. We're more concerned today about our temporary satisfaction. It can be looking at tech, it can be pornography, it can be the what, whatever we wanna serve as an idol. We're more concerned with our temporary satisfaction, what we think we want, what we desire as our preference than we are with a commitment to God and to other people. So sexual immorality. Next thing he does, because he says, don't indulge in sexual immorality. Don't do it. 23,000 people fell. You're not an exception to the rule. And don't put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Can I tell you something that I, I love God's creation. I absolutely hate snakes. Anybody, I mean, anybody else? It's a weird thing. I like to watch them in a way because I'm like, wow. And then I don't want to be anywhere near them. Uh, when my... I was in high school, my brother was older than I am and he went to Furman University. I, was, I, I decided to get on a Greyhound and I took a Greyhound bus to go see my brother at college. Um, I, for all you young people, obviously I couldn't drive and I was like 15, so my parents put me on a Greyhound. It was an adventure and I would just encourage you never to do that. Um, <laughs> but my brother was a part of a frat, which I also think is humorous because basically you're paying to have friends. That's the way I think about it, so good for him. Um, is that too far? Did I go too far on that? Yeah. I'm like, okay, can't make friends of my own because I've lived in front of a computer screen forever. And so I'm gonna pay people to be my friends and then dress like me. Um, too far, I went too far, didn't I? Okay, <laughs> R- relax, it's all good. Um, so he's a part of a frat and they decided as a frat, they were gonna get a snake, a python. Well, my brother called me up and he's like, hey, come on up, but just know that we lost, like we're keeping the python and we lost it. And that thing's six feet long. How do you lose a six-foot snake? Like, that makes me question the university that accepted you. So I, I said, you better find it. I'm not coming in that place. I go. I get there. Did you find a snake? No, but it's probably, it's probably just gone. It's just a python. It's not poisonous. They strangle you and suffocate you. Like... I don't care if it has a little vein in their mouth, it's poisonous. If they can kill me, they can kill me. Like, I don't like them. I'm sitting there on the couch and I promise you 15 minutes later, that thing crawls out from a cushion. I, 23 years of counseling. I hate snakes, hate them, hate snakes. And yet here he says, listen, don't put Christ to the test as some of them did, and they were destroyed by serpents. Numbers 21 verse 5 says that the people spoke against God. Now, right away, when any passage begins with the people spoke against God, the next word is, oh, snap. It is like, oh, boy, this is going to, mm, nope, don't, mm, no, don't do that. 
They spoke against God. They didn't like the way things were going in the wilderness. They weren't happy with the way. They, they wanted God to do things differently than they wanted them to be done. They wanted things to be easier, more comfortable. They wanted some more flavor to the food. And they're like, man, we don't like the food. We want more water. Like, come on. So the Lord sends venomous serpents, snakes among them. They bite the people and the people that Israel died. That's why Moses took one and put it on top of the stick to remind them of their disobedience and their grumbling and complaining. They're testing of God. You remember this now, right? And so he's teaching them, guys, don't you know that the, the very nation that God ordained to represent him, they fell into all the, the idols. They fell into the sexual morality. They fell into testing God and they wanted to see how far they could push God. They just kept doing it. And I, I want to make sure I, I, I'm, I'm camping on this one for a little bit because I think this is one of those things that we ignore often. They just wanted to see how far they could go to live for self while still being aligned with God. It doesn't work that way. You ever had a kid that if they just do something like, don't, please don't do that anymore. Please don't do that anymore. And so then they do it again. And you say, I don't want to tell, and what is a parent? You go, I don't want to tell you again, son. Like, isn't it amazing when you're a parent, you automatically go down an octave when your kids are in trouble. Son, don't do that again. And then um, they do it again. And they just, it's like they're trying to push you to the limit before, before you bring wrath to all the nations. Well, that's, that's what we do to God all the time. I want to see how far I can go. I want to see what I can really do. I'm living for self. I want my preferences. And so even when I know I shouldn't be doing it, even when mom and dad, even when the God of creation says, don't go down there with sexual immorality, you know you're going to get hurt. You know you're going to get hurt. We do it anyway. We do it anyway. And it absolutely demolishes relationships and marriages. So Paul is identifying this as testing the Lord, testing God, seeing how far you can go before God acts. Friends, the Christian life is seeing how close you can get to Jesus, not how far away you can get while still identifying with him. Hello? And then lastly, this is what he says. So don't grumble, some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's what he says. So, hey, you're putting Christ to the test. They were destroyed by serpents that came and bit them, right, and killed them. 30,000 had already died from sexual immorality even, and now they're putting Christ to the test. And then in verse 10, it says, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. I love talking about grumbling and complaining. You want to know why? Because it's one of those issues. It's one of those sins. Yes. Grumbling and complaining is a sin. And it's one of those things like gluttony that we don't like to address and we always have a reason for it. Yeah, but, yeah, but. And so they just kept grumbling and complaining, which means they actually lost their appreciation for what God had done. And so now they thought that their self-satisfaction, their self-desire was greater than what God was doing. They couldn't see beyond self. And so they began to grumble. It's one of the greatest cancers in the church. Grumbling and complaining. There's always something wrong. Even you have those people in your life. And I've got a friend recently I went to. They have wonderful things to say. And, and they're like, hey, I've been thinking about this. And they ask great questions. But in every conversation, there's always a complaint about something. 
And I said, man, can I, can I talk to you about something? And they go, oh boy. I don't know if I do that to you. If I do, I'm kind of sorry, but they like, oh boy, okay, yeah, what do you got? I'm like, there's always a complaint. And when there's always a complaint, it's, not, it's typically arrogance because you think you always know best. You always know best. You don't even ask questions about, hey, why did, why did they, you think they did this? That's arrogance. Or you're not satisfied with what God is doing and you're wanting to do it differently. So there's a lack of satisfaction with who God is and what he's choosing to do. And then the tone of the conversation changed very quickly because you're right, man. And he just, he, he called it out as pride. He said, I'm prideful, I'm arrogant. And honestly, it's probably rooted and I'm angry that things don't sometimes go my way. I was like, dude, you're just counseling yourself right now. So here's scripture. It says, don't grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Don't do it. Our attitude is linked. That's grumbling is your attitude. Right? I don't do it anymore. My kids are older, but literally, you know, you have a bad attitude in my house. You all know. I just say, get out. Like, I don't want, it's, it's cancerous. A bad attitude, a complaining spirit, murmuring and griping is cancerous. And so I would just tell them to leave. They get the coat even in the winter. They come back when they could adjust their attitude a little bit. It matters a lot because you're letting your children or even other people believe that their desire and what they want actually matters more than what God may be doing. And your attitude, by the way, reveals what has control over your heart. I'm gonna encourage you to ask these questions. One, whenever you speak, is it benefiting others? Is it pushing them toward Jesus? It's one of the questions I would ask. And then I would ask that before you speak, remember that complaining poisons everyone around you. You ever given a, like you give a gift to somebody at Christmas and you give them the shirt they want and they say, I thought it was gonna be blue. And you just, like, you just wanna take the gift back. Anybody enjoy giving a gift to somebody who just expects the gift? No. And then he says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Let anyone who thinks that they're the other than, they're the exception to the rule, let them take heed because they're going to fall. You're not exception to the rule. You, bet, you mm, bet, mm, better be careful. It's the only international word I know. Mm. I, I, don't, don't do it. And then, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God, everybody say, God is faithful. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. That's really important, the way of escape. That you may be able to endure it. 
So some people say, why are bad things happening? God never says that the temptation and the bad things won't happen. He says that if you rely on him and you remove all those other things that consume your space, the sexual immorality and the idolatry and the testing of God and the complaining and the grumbling, and you replace that with the strength of the Lord, he'll give you the strength needed to endure it so that you may be able to bear it, so that you may be able to stand against it. That's what he promises. Why are you getting angry at God when hard things happen, when he never says, says that hard things wouldn't happen. He says, I'm going to give you the strength and the energy to endure it. And, he, and, and so, listen, let me tell you how Satan works. Satan, because we're going to receive temptation. It's going to happen every single one of us. And then sometimes we even feel guilty for it. Don't, don't do that. Simply because you're tempted doesn't mean that you're sinning. You got to be careful, right? You may be tempted, but if God gives you the strength to endure, don't let that lead you to a place of feeling like you have captivity according to the evil one. I mean, that's how Satan works. He's a manipulator. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. What you need to do is say, you know what? I'm going to step away from that. And then you can claim victory in Christ because he gave you the strength needed to not bite that, that apple. Right? It's, it's the story of the little boy. So boy, like, I don't know about you guys. I used to grow up and... Uh, I'd go to a gas station. I'd save. I used to be able to buy a piece of gum for I think two pennies. Can't do that anymore. Not, I think it's like a dollar fifty for a piece of gum. And I, it's just I'd go in and I'd collect all the coins and you'd buy some candy. Like I'd have twenty, like twenty thirty cents. You could buy several pieces of candy and I'd have it for the day. And I think about it today, my kids, when we didn't really let them have much candy when they grew up. So they would go into one of those big gas stations like we have now. They're just massive, right? And they'd, they'd, go, they'd go in and just, just look at all the candy. Wow, dad. It's not like that anymore, of course. Well, there's a little boy. He, he goes in, he goes into one of those candy stores and the gas station has got all of it there. And he just starts looking at it. And the cashier's there looking at the little boy. And he thinks the boy's going to take something and run. He's seen this before. He's like, because he's got this huge temptation. And he's like, man, he just stood there for several minutes. Finally, the cashier comes up and he's like, buddy, I'm watching you. It looks like you're trying to take some candy. And the little boy looks at the guy and says, mister, you're wrong. I'm trying not to. And the temptation is going to be there. The temptation is going to be there. For some of you, it's the friend who's like, oh, we we can do it. It's okay. It's okay. And you're going, no. Friends, God is saying, I am faithful. God is faithful. If you rely on me and empty yourself of all these things and let me fill your life, I'm going to give you the strength to endure the temptations of this life for a greater life that is eternal and the power of my son, Jesus Christ. That's what he's telling us. And that's where we find refuge, that we can stand strong because God is faithful. We can endure because God is faithful. Praise be to him who's rich in mercy, 
God is faithful. Let him empower you. And so, Lord, I come before you. I give you thanks and I worship you and I praise you and I acknowledge that you are God. And for these brothers and sisters whom I love, I pray that you would allow them to be strengthened in you, that they would acknowledge the, the idols in their life, that they would remove their sexual morality, that they would stop the grumbling and the complaining, that they would stop testing you and they would fill that void with your presence, with your goodness, with your grace, with your forgiveness. And that more than ever before, they would claim what it is to have victory in Jesus. Amen.